0: Opinions expressed on ACB media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
1: Um, I'm Carla Rushable. I'm the president of ACB Families, and I want to welcome everybody to our Making Sense of the Census program. Just a reminder that if you are interested in uh, learning more about ACB Families, or if you are interested in becoming part of ACB families or renewing your membership, our dues are only $8 a year and we'd love to have you. The phone number where you can call to find more information is 502-897-1472. And um, <clears throat> if you've been to our sessions earlier in the week, you know the rest of the spiel. So we're going to skip it. Our uh, presenter this afternoon is Kevin Carmen? He is very knowledgeable about genealogy. When I was working on getting this session set up, everyone I went to said, Kevin's the person you need to talk to. He knows more than all of us. And so uh, we're going to ask him to talk to us about the census. Of course, we're all interested in the 1950 census that's just come out. But there are many, many other things that relate to the census and and to the census that happens every year. And each one is a little bit different. So, um, you know, we, we don't have time to really learn about all of them. But, um, Kevin, we're so glad you're with us. And we're really looking forward to hearing about the census.
2: Thank you. The um, United States actually has censuses that go back as far as the 1770s. There are random censuses for certain colonies that predate that. In 1790, the um, federal government required censuses for statistical purposes and basically, the um, original purpose was so that they would know the population of various areas. This is how territories became states. Counties were created. And then it was also used to determine how many people of of uh, various cultures, et cetera, were living in each area, citizens versus non-citizens. And between 1790 and 1840, all of the censuses uh, would have the head of household, and then they would just have uh, statistical numbers for the number of males and females in certain age groups that were living in that household. So you only get the one person's name until 1840, and they expanded it slightly, and that was when they added anyone that was drawing a federal pension, especially for Revolutionary War service, whether they were the head of the household or not, they were named and their age was given. Then in 1850, they expanded the census, and if you're using censuses for other countries, they actually started a little earlier, 1820s and 30s, and they named every person in the household. But it wasn't until you get a couple of decades later that they actually gave the kinship of all of those people. But at least you knew everyone that was living in the household. So today, I went to the 1950 census. It is actually beginning to show up now in searches. If you're searching for a particular person born in a particular time frame in a particular state, and that part of the 1950 census is indexed, you can find it on Ancestry. I have not seen it on FamilySearch or any of the other sites yet. But ancestry are coming online. And the 1950 census specifically, since that's the one that's coming out, does list all of the members of the household, their birthplace, their age, whether they're citizens or not, if they're immigrants approximately when they immigrated, and that sort of thing. And then for certain members of each household down the page, they will assign in the far right-hand column a secondary number, and you look at the bottom of the page, and there's a separate block that will give you additional information, like the um, number of years they attended school, whether they have a, a college degree or not, what sort of income they had for that year, whether they own or rent their home. So between 1850 and 1950, gradually the information becomes more comprehensive, and all of the data that you gather there is... One, primary evidence, because it's being given by typically a member of the, the family, but sometimes they would interview other individuals. But two, it's a snapshot in time. You see who was living together, what their their current status, social rank was, uh, where they were working, their occupation, their education level, if they were immigrants when they had come into the country, whether they're naturalized or not. And all of these facts can be used to determine in a particular period of time how your family uh unit was organized and who all the other uh, people were that were living with them and in the uh previous uh generations of course there were extended families so you might have grandparents or cousins that have come to town to go to school or to work that are living with the family members but it's a snapshot in time you get an address you get a location you know all the neighbors and all of that information can then be used to gather other records. Now you know what year they immigrated. So you can look at the immigration records and you're not looking blindly in a 50-year period of time. You know approximately what year he immigrated. You know whether he or she was naturalized or not and approximately when. Uh, you'll know approximately when each of the children were born. Uh, you'll have a general idea of their occupation and in many cases, there will be occupational records that you can add to that. But by knowing all of the neighbors, you probably will find other collateral kin in-laws or whatever living next door. But that can even be compared to deed records. And the neighbors, uh, people that owned adjoining property and deed records will match what's in the census. And so if you're working on a John Smith, and he has Flynn Kaviddlehopper living next door, there's only going to be one John Smith that will fit that criteria. And all of that information then helps you to forward your research. And with them being uh, 10 years, a centennial event, that gives you every 10 years snapshots in the lives of your family as you're tracing either backwards or forward to Discover Cousins.
0: Good afternoon. My name is Wilma. Do we have yes. to go to ancestry.com for this or is this some kind of uh, website that you can go through through the census?
2: There's actually multiple okay. sites. For the for the nineteen fifty, Ancestry is putting it up first. Uh family search will eventually have all of it and then for earlier censuses there are other web pages like genealogy trails and and etc but if you just do a search like ask.com or google and put in quotation marks like 1900 census and then a location you may find transcripts of it as well as original micro uh, film copies
0: so you put quotation marks 1950 census
2: yes or any year that you're searching
0: okay all right thank you
2: yes okay One of the primary purposes for the census, as I indicated, was statistics, and that changes every 10 years. That's how congressional districts are determined because it's based on population and et cetera. However, in those secondary census entries, you will find uh, agricultural schedules. This gives you the number of acres that that particular household was farming in that census year. You will see how many cows they had, how many horses, how many sheep, how many bushels of corn they raised, or whatever other crop they were raising. There will be some financial schedules, but there's another important one in the early censuses, and it's called the mortality schedule. Anyone who died within the year of the census, so if the census date, and you always see this at the top of the census because it changes between March and July, I believe, if the census date is June of 1880, anyone who died in the household between June of 1879 and June of 1880 will be in the mortality schedule. Now, these are usually not indexed. Some of them are published, but they're usually not a part of the microfilm that you will find on the major web pages. You almost always have to go to microfilm to access these. There are, however, <coughs> for the mortality schedule, Abstracts of those that have been published, and we have those available in the branch libraries on microfiche, and then some of those other genealogy websites that I mentioned, like Genealogy Trails, will publish them either by county or by state. Uh, and it's just a random—you have to look in in card catalogs to determine what's available in that uh, particular instance. But those schedules will help you to identify death dates. Of any member of the household that died within that census year of course the other nine years you're still on your own but it just adds additional information in modern years so back to what we're dealing with in 1950 that secondary part of the schedule that I mentioned at the bottom ten and twenty years ago when my family uh, participated in the census we were contacted by the Census Bureau Maybe one in every 100 households in the country, the Census Bureau would contact, and for the next two years, after the census, they would come out quarterly and interview everyone in the family, have you extended your education, are you still employed in the same place, what's your income level now? And so they were updating all of that information, and all of that statistical data, of course, is absorbed and used by various government entities, but again... If you can access some of those secondary schedules, and they're a little harder to find, as I indicated, but if you can access those, you get even more information. The um, uh, primary use of the census for genealogists or anyone that's working on their their, uh, family history or any historical project, for that matter, you get... All the people living together, and as I said, the neighbors, but you also get the particular section of town or the county in which those individuals are living. You can actually then use that to compare with maps, and just using one city, for example, Louisville, Kentucky, they created census maps that went along with the census district, and they overlay those uh, on plastic onto the plat maps. For the deeds so if you go into the county courthouse and you know where the family was living in the census either the enumeration district or the ward of the city and you pull those land maps from that area now you actually get a title trace and if the house number changed or whatever you'll know if you want to drive to the house and see the place the exact house that that family lived in 50, 100, 150 years ago. And that secondary record gives you an entire list of every person that's owned and lived in that house in between. So the census is kind of like your compass. You use that record as a 10-year marker, snapshot in time again, as I said before, to pinpoint who in the family was living in what area who was related to whom, who did they interact with, and who were they living around. All of that information then points to other records that you can use. There are a few caveats in using the census. As I stated before, they had to interview either a member of the family or if they could not find a member of the family, they had to interview someone that knew the family well enough to identify all the people there. They wanted the statistics as correct as possible. But up until, I believe, 1960, the census enumerators were not paid a wage, uh, an hourly wage. They were paid by the number of lines they filled out. So, once in a while, you'll find the same family listed twice in two different districts because someone wanting to make a little extra money would go across the line and, and record households that had already been recorded. They did go door to door. So that is a secondary reference that the names of the people up and down the page should be chronological house numbers and going around city blocks. So you can get the the names of all the people that were living in that block at that time. And if someone other than a family member was the one that was giving the information for the particular census entry, they're supposed to indicate that, but they didn't always. The unfortunate drawback is that they would hire just about anybody that could read and write to do these censuses, and they were not always uh, uh ethical. <laughs> and so there will be flaws or mistakes in the censuses from time to time. There will be misspellings. If people speak with a thick Italian or Dutch accent, they don't know how to spell the name, and it will be grossly misspelled. You just have to be a little bit patient to work around some of those quirks. But by and large, the information in the census is considered primary. The information in the census, as I stated before, can be used to pull other records and to compare and contrast. And then you get all of those other statistical bits and pieces of information from the agricultural schedule or those supplemental pages or supplemental blocks at the bottom of the page that you wouldn't find anywhere else. How would you know that uh, a, an income from a minister 150 years ago was about $4,552. That was the one that I looked up myself this uh, earlier today. Um, you can also then compare that information to the records that you've already collected to make certain that the information that you've been assembling is correct. So we use, historically as well as genealogically, we use the census not only for statistics, but as a 10-year snapshot in time and a record that can be used as a gauge to determine whether all the other information that you're amassing is correct. Um,
1: Let's see if if we've got a couple of questions here. I I have a question for you before anybody hmm, jumps ahead of me here. Um, if, If you said the census is considered a primary source, does that include the indexes of the census? Um, you know, that you can find for us if we can't read the, um, the original record that's handwritten, but we're getting information, say, on ancestry or family search or my heritage that is indexed. And maybe there's an error. Uh, would that still be considered a primary source?
2: Uh, Yes, if you were trying to use it for, say, DAR, SAR application, and and et cetera, and you can't actually view the the census itself, the index entry should be acceptable. Um, The genealogist that's reviewing such an application is going to be reviewing the material, uh, especially when you've got those caveats like, um, uh, in one particular instance, I was correcting a census, you can edit on Ancestry and family search, when someone has indexed something wrong, it's written sloppy, and they couldn't read the name. They had one of my aunts named Hermit, H-I-R-M-O-T. Well, it was very sloppy handwriting, and I knew her name was Harriet. (laughs) And so I went in and corrected it, and then you can highlight it. Once I've corrected it, the index entry will give you both.
1: Oh, okay. The
2: original, All right. as well as the corrected. So then it becomes primary, definitely. Okay. Okay, so for the earlier censuses, I've kind of covered the pretty pretty thoroughly. For the earlier censuses, you'll also find there's columns that give you the number of children, the number of other people that are living in the household, and then you get actually ethnic groups. And so there's a schedule of the, the census that's called the slave schedule, but that's where they recorded anyone that was not citizen and property owner. Irish were considered non-white when they were mass migrating in the 1840s. Uh, you would have free as well as slave blacks. You would have Chinese. You would have Hispanics. The head of the household will be named in those up to 1850 and that's all. Or, if they are living on the plantation or the farm or in a, a boarding house of someone who is listed as a head of household, all you get is those little carrot marks showing that there's those individuals are living there and, and sometimes they specify a specific, specific ethnicity and sometimes they don't. But when you get to 1850, that too is a separate schedule. All of these separate schedules, the mortality schedule, the agricultural schedule, uh, slave or or um, uh, other family member schedules, all of those have the same um, household number as the person who actually owns that property and has shown up in the original. So let's say you're working on John Smith and his farm is in District 1 of a certain county and it's farm number 859-861. You'll look on all of those other schedules in the same district for 859-861, and that's where you'll find that farm's records, that group of other individuals that are living on the farm or working on the farm. That's where you'll find that particular household's mortality schedule. And it's important to remember that you've got to use the number to cross-reference those, because if that person that died in the household in the mortality schedule in that year was the mother-in-law, A surname is not going to match, and so you can't do a surname search. You've got to look at who died in that particular household and then figure out how that person is related. Um, Again, they give specific kinships starting in 1860-70, depending upon the state and territory or even the country. And those kinships can be a little bit misleading because the term cousin was used loosely. And so if it's a stepchild, it might be listed as as cousin. If it's the child of a deceased brother and sister-in-law, it may be listed as cousin instead of nephew or niece. So be a little bit um, liberal in the way that you interpret that data. Then you get, in the earliest censuses, um, there will be a name on the either left-hand column of the page or it'll be across the top of the page that will have a title. It'll be Colonel So-and-So or Captain So-and-So. The census, as well as the tax list, which was kept annually, are also the militia roll. This is how you can determine my ancestor fought in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Civil War, etc. When that captain's name Matches as the commander of the militia unit or the military unit in that particular war where your person, your ancestor was living, that's probably then your ancestor that's in those military records. Um, so as you can see, the census is a catch all. It, it's a, as I said before, a compass where you, once you Glean the information from that, and if you really pay attention to everything that's on there and record it properly, you can then compare that to military records, deed records, probate records, marriage records, births and deaths, and all of those records should match the naming pattern that you see in those censuses, and with them being every 10 years from 1850 forward, where they name every person in in the family, basically for the last Two hundred years you can identify each and every one of the individuals in the family from the other records in compare and contrast and so if you've got multiple families living in a community the husband and wife at the same given names the children that are living together in a specific census are the ones that go to, together in one particular family group um, as far as the 1950 census is concerned, I think it's probably going to take about another six months before they completely uh index, double-check, and pull all of the images forward. And so it still may be a little while before all of those are available. But like I said, I've started finding them in just general searches. I was not looking for it specifically, but it shows up. So they are beginning to come online. And as I also said, there will be corrections to indexer, indexing. So if you don't find them the first time around, drag in a little bit later, because people that do find them will make corrections. They can edit like I did. And that will make all of the information that eventually appear that is missing. Um, we have boatloads of volunteers that are indexing this across the country, and thank heavens we do; otherwise, it would take a long time for it to be done. But unfortunately, not everyone can read all of the old handwriting. Um, I think I've pretty much covered everything for the 1950 census and the census in general. I guess. Do we have any okay. questions?
1: Do we have any Do we have any questions in the room or on Zoom? Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Yes. Okay. Okay. This is Adam. And I actually have two questions, although I think they can have short answers. The first is, with the onset of the Civil War in 1860 and the aftermath in 1870, uh, do you know of any problems of people being willing to cooperate in providing the information for the census? And then secondly, for the 1950, is a lot of that being done with computers and that sort of thing, which helps to speed up the processing?
2: Uh The last question first, yes, they are using computers to do part of the indexing and part of the verification, and I don't know whether Ancestry is doing it or not, but on Family Search, when you do a search and you get ready to link that document to an individual, they have a, a place there where they tell you that it's being indexed by a computer and to click on this if there's a problem, so if it's misspelled, that way they can work out the quirks. As far as the census between 1860 and 1870, yeah, there are some caveats. Uh The vast majority of the people, at least in my experience, and I've been doing this now for 48 years, I find very few people that refused to be a part of the census or lied about the information. Um, there were, in certain states, both in the North and the South, for opposite reasons, uh people who falsified some information. Um, Well, I'll give you one example. I have a cousin who in 1906 vanished from records. And I could not figure out where in the world she went. Well, she had um, multiracial children. And she had moved from southern Kentucky to Indiana And she had gone from white to black. She was dark complected because she was black Irish, black hair and very dark complected like most of the people in my family. And she had married a black man in Indiana and they'd already had three or four children. And so literally for the rest of her life, she lied about who she was to hide the fact that it was an interracial marriage. So there were cases of that, but, Generally speaking, because the census was always collected up to the last two uh face to face it was very hard to pass and and to uh falsify information to any degree um, but no between the eighteen sixty eighteen fifty sixty and seventy census, the information at least in the families that I've worked on in my own as well as um uh contracts is pretty consistent. I don't see a uh, major conflict so you can basically count on the information being correct
1: okay do we have another do we have any questions on the zoom roberta absolutely fascinating um i am curious about um when you say you do a search um you know for those of us who are blind we use um software you know that translates text into speech and I'm right. Am I guessing correctly? Most of the information that will come up is documents that are handwritten that are basically, uh, a more modern version of microfiche. Okay. Um, Roberta, I have tried, I've I've do some, um, things in genealogy on my computer I do most of what I do on my iPhone. Uh, I'm sure if I had an Android, I could uh, apply some of the same things. Um, and I do find that there are quite a few things that I just can't do without some sighted assistance. For example, um, if if the display shows um, a, a pedigree, chart with um parents grandparents all these things it's kind of it's graphical and your speech will read the names on there but it won't at least i haven't found a magical way to tell um you know which which level each person belongs to if i already know that's great but if i already know i don't need to be looking at the pedigree chart (laughs) so um you know there are uh, some things that just are going to be difficult for us because, um, say, an original census record is going to be handwritten. But that index is is not. It's very, the index is very speech-friendly. And sometimes it depends on the site. Ancestry has done a lot with their app um, on the iPhone. I don't know about the, I'm sure they have an Android app, and I'm not sure About how that works, but if you play with the app and explore it, um, there's an amazing amount of information there. Um, the hints alone, you, I can spend hours in the hints just looking at what comes up because ancestry, you know, once they know that you're related to, uh, Mary Sue, then a hint's going to come up that relates to whatever else they know about Mary Sue. So, um, I don't know if that helps much, but, uh, it, it definitely, I first started doing some genealogy in 1985 and there was nothing that I could do by myself. And so I would have people read me the microfish. And now you talk about that can be boring for someone, a volunteer reader reading the microfish. It's a challenge <laughs> because, because, you know, you might have. Um, you know, you have to read a whole lot in order to find what you're looking for. But as time has gone on, and especially with smartphones, um, I use my smartphone a lot more than I use my computer uh, for the information. Uh, But the same information is still there, and there's more on the computer. It's just that it's not quite as speech-friendly.
2: Okay, thanks. I will add this. Um, the new indexing program that we were talking about, where the computer is actually beginning to index, they have expanded that, and so the published indexes that we used 20 and 30 years ago only gave you the name and the page number. Yes. Today, anytime you find an individual in the index entry, you get the name, the occupation, the birth uh, place, birth place appearance if that was in the census, the age, the occupation the page number that it appears on, and then everyone else that's in the, the family. And so by indexing comprehensively, then it translates to Braille very quickly. And you, <laughs> you do get to see basically what's in that entire family group, but you don't get to see all the supplementary data that you'd, you'd have to have someone decided to to assist with. And I'll also say that if you're going to try to get assistance, I would go specifically to a genealogy library or genealogy department of a library, or to one of the family history centers uh, attached to the LDS churches, because those people are trained in genealogy, and they're volunteers usually, but that's their forte, and so they're Hmm. not just a general librarian. That's
1: a great idea. Thank you. Yes. And you can search that online and find where they are in your area are there questions in the room this is carla hayes of mcmurray pennsylvania and i'm wondering um, especially when you get around to the turn of the century um, how the census reflected and handled emigration and immigration
2: well, as I said, they do put on there the date of immigration. They put the birthplace, and then once they add the birthplace appearance, you can actually see if they moved around more than once before they settled. Uh, you get the estimated year of immigration and whether or not they are naturalized and the approximate year that that occurred, which then, as I stated, helps you to find those records. I would say, as a general rule, because... I think if I remember correctly, we went through six changes in immigration law between uh, War of 1812 and World War Two. And in each of those changes, it was basically statistical changes to prevent, one, cities becoming inundated, but the countryside is not, or two, um, they wanted to know where the bulk of the people were coming from so that they had some general idea that if you have a, a bunch of Welsh coming in, you know you probably have miners. If you have a bunch of Irish coming in, you probably have farmers. If they're Italian, well, they were tradesmen across the board. And so all of those statistics were important to to the government for various reasons. Um, I I think having... Several late immigrant ancestors, myself, and having done many contracts uh, for late immigrants, I think the censuses are very comprehensive, and you won't find many people being missed, other than certain groups in certain periods of time would um, choose not to be listed. Sort of the same concept that you hear today in, in certain dialogues or conversations about they're afraid of the police because of what the police were like back home. Uh, they were afraid of the government because of what the government was like back home. And so you will find with certain groups in certain areas at certain times, they maybe didn't all get counted as as uh, thoroughly as we would have liked. But generally speaking, it's very comprehensive and very thorough.
1: She said, what about, what name, about changes? name
2: changes? Name changes.
1: Yeah, as they came in oh, like boy. through uh, you know Ellis Allen and things like that.
2: Well, the okay. Ellis Island name change thing, I've heard recently on uh, Story TV and KET, they're calling it a myth and saying it never happened. Well, it did happen, but it's not as frequent as you expect. The vast majority of name changes took place because of world events, and they usually took place after they were here for a while. Um, Germans here in Louisville, Kentucky, during World War I, anglicized their names in bulk. My Germans immediately became carpenters because that was the English equivalent of that word. Uh Rosen bombs would drop either the the bomb and become rose, or they would drop the rosen and become bombs. Uh and that was just because they didn't want to be associated with Germany anymore during World War One when it was unpopular. Um I I think you will find that Ninety percent of the time, the name that they gave is what is written. It may be grossly bastardized because they couldn't understand the accent and and didn't know how to spell in that particular language. Uh, But the vast majority of the people that changed their names did so willingly after they got here.
1: Okay. Any questions in Zoom?
2: Carla, this is Michael Byington, and I do have one.
1: Well, hello, Michael Byington.
0: In a couple of past jobs I had, I had... Uh, offices located in buildings that were on a uh, over 100 year old mental hospital grounds. And there was a cemetery on that hospital grounds. And I was uh, peripherally involved in raising money and awareness to at least get markers for the graves in that ser- uh, cemetery because there were like a couple of hundred graves there and only about 14 of them even had markers. Uh, we were able to find some records of names of those people. Most of them, at least, had first and last name and dates of death. But the records were very sketchy, and the uh, dates of death that were were uh, all the way from the uh, late 1860s to the early 1970s. And I'm just curious when uh, people were incapacitated and living in long-term mental health care or so they called it back then and there was it was a pretty dreadful existence Uh, when the census came around who was responsible for including those folks in the census and did they do it
2: they did it very thoroughly believe it or not and it was the caretaker the nun the priest whomever was in charge of that particular institution And they are categorized in some censuses just when they got to that door independently. And then in others, it's separated, and it's a separate enumeration district all unto itself. So just to give you the one that I'm most familiar with, Kentucky. Central State and Eastern State Hospital, they recorded every one of those people. And the ones that I knew or have traced that were in those records, They're about 85% accurate. The age may be off a little bit. They may not know the birthplace of the parents, and they'll put unknown or they'll put the wrong place. Uh, But but the vast majority of those are compiled from the records, just like if you get a death certificate for an individual that died under under those circumstances. Um, After vital statistics were being kept, you'll see the name of the informant. And because it wasn't a relative, some of the information will be missing. The other part of that is they needed to know, just as they do today, how many children were in orphanages versus the number of children that were actually being raised in a home, whether it was one parent, both parents, grandparents, or whatever. They needed to know how many people were incapacitated and uh, institutionalized for various reasons, whether it was health or mental health or whatever. And so because those statistics were important to funding from... Well, as early as the Civil War, forward, uh, those institutions did record their information accordingly. And, of course, in later years, part of their government funding depended upon being honest about how many people were there and who they were.
0: Thank you.
1: And so, um, Kevin, if you have anything else that you would like to add,
2: We've had several questions about immigration, and so that makes me think a lot of people have late immigrants, which means you're probably going to have overlaps in in use of records in other countries. Australia and Canada have comparable censuses to Great Britain, and all of their censuses began much earlier than ours. But as early as 1821, their censuses are always in the one year rather than the zero year. In 1821, they started listing all the names of individuals in the households in certain countries, and by 1851, they were all con- consistent. Then there's European censuses, and unfortunately, a lot of those did not survive World War I and World War Two. but those censuses are also available, and they also, between 1841 and 51, begin to record everyone in the in the household. You get earlier censuses that aren't very helpful, uh but at least it tells you where a person was living, how many people were in their household and, and what amount of land they owned if any or whether they were leasing in their trade that sometimes go back as as early as the sixteenth century, but they're they're random. Um, there were also uh in the United States, I'm trying to think if I can remember how many, I think there's sixteen states that kept state censuses and they did those in the five-year. New York is one of them, and you'll find those on Ancestry and Family Search in droves if you're working on New York families. 1905, 1915, 1925. Iowa and Nebraska kept them in later years. Kansas, I think, started in 1855. So do pay attention when you're working on censuses. If they say state census, do pay attention to those because now you've got every five years the statistical information that the federal census only gives you on the 10-year. And then also, when you're dealing with family that moved into a pioneer area, Utah, uh the Mormon Church keeps their own censuses. Uh They don't do them on a regular basis anymore, but I think they used to do them every five years. Also, um when Kentucky was to become a state, they expanded the tax list to do a census count and they started listing the number of children between the ages of 6 and 16 so that they knew how many people were living in Kentucky and that would, that was the number needed to leave Virginia and become a state. Uh, Indiana did one. So there's random other censuses besides the ones that we know of. And hear about most frequently the federal census that can also be every bit as helpful, and sometimes they give you even more information. Uh, Part of my family left Kentucky and went to Kansas for 20 years and then came home. And the state census in the five year gives me more information than the federal census did in the 10 year, and it's more accurate.
1: Okay. All right. I think that's it. Any other questions? Is there one? thing that you suggest
0: over the other? Which one has the most information? Ancestry, family search? Is anyone, would you suggest one is better than the other or they're all about
1: the same? That's a good question. Well,
2: it's, yeah, it's not that they're all about the same. In some degrees, they're duplicative. Maybe 50% of what you find on one, you'll find on the other. Uh, 25% of what you find on Ancestry is indexed and it's not on family search and then vice versa. But then there's that other very small percentage that is not duplicated across the board. Um, On Ancestry, you can access newspaper.com index. But on FamilySearch, you more frequently get genealogy bank obituaries. And so I go back and forth and use both. The other advantage is because they have their own volunteers doing their indexing, I'm looking for something on my Ancestry and I'm pulling my hair out because I know I'm working on Flormont Desiree de Loo from Belgium. And it's spelled, uh, Flo Mon, uh, John de Level. And I can't find it. But when I go to family search, because they've got so many Dutch members of the church that are indexing, they've got it spelled right. And then I was looking for a census on, uh uh family search and the man's name was gross and I couldn't find it and couldn't find it. I went to Ancestry and found it. When I went back to family search, they had indexed it as grass. <laughs> so I used both equally and I bounced back and forth, especially when I know there should be a second document here and I can't find it. I use both. Uh they complement one another, I would say. And then like I said, there's other organizations like Genealogy Trails. They're not indexing original film, they're extracting records and publishing lists and indexes or abstracts. And so when you're really having problems finding what you want, there you go to a specific state or a specific county and it's not going to start throwing things in from other countries and other states as you're doing a search. You're searching just in that one community. So I don't recommend one over the other i recommend using all of them and you just have to learn as you go along what's going to benefit me most where do i want to start or where do i want to try to find this thing that is missing
1: and the ancestry does have different levels of memberships you can yep. have a free tree on ancestry but you can't do much with it and you can't see a lot of things on there um, they do have Uh, A level that is strictly uh, within the United States, and then they have a world, their most expensive one is uh, worldwide. Uh, I think family, is it Family Search free for anybody to use? Yeah, the only thing that
2: you cannot do on Family Search free, some British records and some random others are labeled as restricted. And when you try to open the original document, it will say you need to go to the Family History Center to use it. And that's because when the church microfilmed those records, England put a restriction on printing or viewing the original documents, because telling those is how they fund the restoration and and upkeep. And uh, that if you go to the Family History Center, you can see, you may not be able to print everything, but you can see everything that they have and also at the family history center and then at certain libraries like uh, Southern Indiana Genealogical Society has their library uh their entire collection in the basement of the New Albany Indiana library if you go into their collection their computer system not the main one upstairs or if you go to a family history center you can access their ancestry myheritage newspapers.com genealogy bank you can access those free at that site.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, my heritage is another one that's interesting. It's a little busy uh, to use with speech, but there are a lot of. In fact, ancestry I can go round and round and round. I mean, not ancestry in my heritage. I can go round and round and round a lot, and it seems like I never find where I started. But um, some of its searches are pretty user-friendly with with speech. And um, and if I have my um, Braille display, uh, Bluetooth to my iPhone, it does give me some pretty good uh, things. Same is true with the other sites as well. Well, I uh, appreciate all of you coming. Thanks to Nancy for being our host. Thanks to Herbie for being our streamer and uh and especially thanks to you Kevin for taking time to come and talk to us about this this was a fascinating session and uh i can, i'm going to forewarn you you might get asked to come and talk again on some other <laughs> topics this has been fabulous thank you so much